Hello, my fellow seasoned athletes, and welcome to the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Leggett. The Seasoned Athlete Podcast is your home for stories, inspiration, motivation, training tips, and more directly from elite athletes from a wide variety of sports who all share one common bond. They are all over 40 years old. We're here to prove one story at a time that age doesn't have to prevent you from achieving your bold athletic and fitness goals. You can learn more about this podcast at seasonedathlete.me. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe, share with everyone you know, and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. Today, I'll be interviewing winter endurance cyclist Amy Breen. But first, allow me to introduce this week's featured Everyday Seasoned Athlete. The Everyday Seasoned Athlete segment is where I get to shine the spotlight on a different athlete each week who is making his or her mark in their chosen sport. These athletes that I feature in this segment come from a varying degree of backgrounds, skill levels, and experience. And hopefully their stories will inspire you to get out there and try something new. Let's get to know this week's Everyday Season Athlete, trail runner Kathleen Michael. I'm Kathleen Michael. I'm 61 years old, and my favorite sport is trail run racing. I love racing on the trails, and the reason I love it is that it inspires me to work as absolutely hard as I can. I've learned that it's something that I seem to have a talent for that I had no idea that I had a talent for. I seem to be able to go uphill faster than a lot of people. And the scenery is great. The camaraderie is great. Um, I'm usually the oldest person there or one of the oldest people there. And I get a lot of cheering on from those who um, are younger and faster. And that just adds to it. I stay motivated to keep doing trail racing. Um, The first reason is health. I really appreciate that everything in my body still works. And some of my peers don't have that luxury. Every time I go out there, I I know that I'm lucky and I want to um, push myself. And the second reason is just plain fun. Sometimes I actually get the giggles when I'm running downhill because it brings out that inner 10-year-old that was gone for about 40, 45 years. And so those are the two main factors that keep me motivated. I'm Kathleen Michael, and I'm a seasoned athlete. If you're over age 40 and participate in a sport at any level, go to seasonedathlete.me slash everyday to find out how you can be featured as an everyday seasoned athlete in an upcoming episode. And now let's get to know today's featured guest, Arctic botanist and winter ultra endurance athlete, Amy Breen. Hi, Amy. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm good. So are you ready to drop some seasoned athlete knowledge on our listeners today? Sure, I'll do my best. I believe in you. So Amy, you're a research professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. You're an Arctic botanist who dedicates your summers to research on the remote tundra of northern Alaska. When not working, you enjoy playing in the mountains near your home in Palmer, Alaska, whether it be hiking, running, bicycling, or skiing with your husband and two dogs. You also happen to be a winter ultra endurance athlete who recently topped the women's field in the Iditarod Trail Invitational, or ITI, a human-powered ultra endurance race which follows the well-known Iditarod sled dog race. 
And you have a pretty extraordinary story to tell about that race that we're going to get into today. Is there anything else vital that's personal, professional, or from your athletic life that you'd like to take a moment to fill in? No, no, I think you about covered it. Oh, good. <laughs> I feel I feel good about that. All right. So from here, I'm going to ask the big question that I ask all my guests, and that is, what is your age at this moment in time? I am 47. That's fantastic. So let's start at the beginning. When did you start playing sports and what did your early athletic life look like if there was an early athletic life? Did you play sports or were you active growing up? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I was active growing up. I was active outdoors. I was hiking with my father when I was young and we started backpacking when I was a teenager together. And I continued in that line in terms of more outdoor pursuits like skiing and hiking, backpacking, um, climbing as well when I was in college. And when I was um, much younger, I did more organized sports. So I was actually a, a softball player was probably my main sport. That's what I played in high school. And um, as I got older in college, I was spending a lot of time outdoors. And then I also took up running and was bicycling as a commuter. The bicycling I do now has changed quite a bit. Bicycling became more prominent when I met my husband. Um, I was more of a skier living in Alaska, which is something that essentially I lived in Fairbanks before um, I lived in near Anchorage, where I am now. And I was there for about 15 years. And you really just have to embrace the outdoors. And skiing is one of the easiest ways of doing it. And mostly cross-country skiing. There's really great trails in Fairbanks. When my husband moved up to Alaska, he did not embrace skiing as I did. Um, and he had been more of a cyclist where, um, where he'd lived previously. So we started fat biking as something that we could do together outdoors. And tell me a little bit about what fat biking is for our listeners who may not have heard of that. Yeah, yeah. So fat biking um, is essentially, it's a bicycle that has, um, it's built so that it has fatter tires. So it floats on snow. So it's very similar to um to skiing in which, uh, depending on the size of your skis, it gives you more float. So you might have a very wide ski if you're powder skiing, for example, and you're downhill skiing. And the fat bike has fat tires and um, is set up in a manner that it's winterized for cold temperatures and you can travel on the snow on the bicycle. It doesn't mean you can go anywhere. You do still need to be on a trail of some sort um, or it has to be packed. Otherwise, you're pushing your bike, which can happen well. So even if it's a packed trail and once once it can gets to be pretty deep snow, you really don't have a lot of options to ride. And that's a big part of winter endurance riding or what we call hike a bike. So you were doing that with your husband. Were you doing the longer races or were you doing more shorter, shorter trail riding? You know, the first year we got our bikes, we signed up for a hundred mile race. And I, I said, you know, I talked about cross country skiing as like a daily type of activity, but I also like to ski mountaineer and, um, ice climb in the winter months. And I'm concentrating more on the winter because that's the aspect that we're talking about. So I've always liked having challenges. And I, I suppose not everyone would have started their first season signing up for a hundred mile race, but we have a local race in the White Mountains um, near Fairbanks and uh, friends who were really excited about the race, who were the race directors and their enthusiasm was somewhat contagious. So we just went all in and signed up for a hundred mile race. And we did a 50 K before that as kind of a shakedown. The 50 K was just a little warm up race. That was your fun, your fun run as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Just to um, get an idea how well this would work. And actually that was an epic fail. I did very poorly and it was my first bicycle race ever, but I, I finished. 
but I um, ended up having to walk about 10 miles or push my bike for about 10 miles of that. So, but I, I did like, I'm proud that I finished. Um, and then I learned, uh, to pace myself after that. So let's talk about the hundred mile race, the first hundred mile race you did. How did that go for you? My husband and I did that together. And my goal was to finish ultimately. So I didn't have a lot of race strategy. I knew I had to pace myself. I knew that it was important to, um, to be eating and drinking throughout the race. So that was kind of my focus is just not going too fast, being at a pace that was comfortable and taking care of myself and also, you know, staying, staying warm. Um, it, it turned out to be a year where it was um, quite cold. So that's another aspect of fat biking is that you have to be thinking about conditions and taking care of yourself so you don't get frostbite or it's very easy to overheat. And then you're with your sweat, you're wet. And then that can um, just just cause you to be even colder. So you have to pay attention to your layering and um, that sort of thing. It's such a fine line in these winter races, any sort of winter race that you do, especially in ultra, that fine line between being too cold and overheating. And uh, I, I did a Spartan race up in Tahoe and granted this was 15 miles, but it still took me eight hours to complete it. And so I, I've experienced a little bit of that where it's like, you have to have the layers with you. You may or may not wear them depending on if you get wet, depending on if it gets cold, but it's, it's serious because frostbite is serious and you don't want to overheat and your sweat can make you cold, which is a weird phenomenon, but true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, um, I think just putting all of that together, like the goal was to finish and to finish and feel good and happy and, um, know that, it was, it was an accomplishment. And I met that goal. There were some hard parts, you know, during the, like during the race where, you know, I kind of questioned what I was doing out there. And that happens in any race, I think, or at least for me, it does. I remember at one point thinking to myself, um, I'm going to be out here all night. And I probably should have realized that, but I did not at the time. I think that, um, we finished in, in 25 hours, that first hundred mile race. And we were somewhat in the middle of the pack. There were, I think there were 65 participants. So we didn't, we didn't do too bad, but we went through, you know, started at 8 a.m. in the morning and finished the next day at um, 10 o'clock in the morning. So we were out all night and the night was the coldest part of the race. And there are some sections the way the train is that are lower elevation. And I think the temperatures got down to minus 30. So that was um, that was pretty tough, especially in the darkest part of the night to get through. But then once the sun came up, it's really energizing and you feel yourself able to accomplish more than you had had thought previously. And like those dark thoughts in the nighttime just kind of disappear. And especially as you get closer to the end as well, you can kind of let go and realize that you're going to make it. How do you get through those dark moments? How do you get through when and when I talk about the dark moments, I'm not talking about just the darkness at night, but the darkness <laughs> that you're probably feeling in your soul in those dark moments. What do you do to get through that? That is a very good question. I don't know if I have a go-to, like I say to myself, oh, if I'm not doing well, this is what I do. I know that I often reach for food because I think I must not have the calories I need. Like I'm not, I'm not thinking well, maybe I need to eat, maybe I need to drink. Um, when's the last time I did that? So that's kind of going through my mind. And sometimes it's, you know, breaking down the race instead of thinking about, I still have 50 more miles to go. I'm only halfway there. Think about, okay, what's the distance to the next checkpoint? How long will that take me? 
and break it down into chunks can help with meeting a goal as well. That's actually something I tell people in the world of obstacle racing advice that I give when races are tough, when races are long, it's, you know, you take it one mile at a time. You don't look at the big picture. You just, it's like one step at a time if you need to like break it down as far as you need to. And eventually you will get through it. Yeah. And just, just taking it. I mean, sometimes it's okay. I'm going to make it up this next hill. (laughs) That can happen too. And we use the term, and maybe this is something you use as well, relentless forward progress. Like as long as you're going forward, you're doing well. True. My husband and I started doing this together. So, you know, we're together and we were for this first race. So when one of us was not doing well, usually the other one was. So having a a buddy or a partner, I think, can help to, to keep you moving along. And I don't think there was any ever a point where we both were not doing well. So one thing that we'll do is we'll put the person who's not doing well in the front. So they set the pace and then the other person will be behind and just coordinating in in that way. And it's a lot different when you're by yourself. Um, Having to find that inside can be can be more of a challenge. Yeah, I agree. It definitely helps to have a race partner or a race team. It definitely helps to have someone out there that can help you and you can help them. Yeah. And it's also nice to be able to race with your spouse. I imagine that's pretty cool. It, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, and we tell this story. One thing, like there's just a funny story from that first race. I was not doing so well and he was out in front of me and I thought he was kind of leaving me behind and he was in a pretty good mood and I, I, I was not, and he got ahead of me and he stopped to wait and I was pushing my bike and he was riding and he was waiting on the side of the trail. And I, I was just feeling angry that he was doing well and I wasn't. <laughs> so I, <laughs> it was dark and I, I pushed my bike and he said, hey, how you doing? And I just ignored him and I pushed my bike and pretended I didn't hear or see him. It was dark, so but we have headlamps and bike lights, so that wasn't a complete excuse. But I, I don't know what I was thinking. And I, I pushed past him and he kind of watched me in disbelief and he was like, I know you can hear me. And I just started laughing because I realized how ridiculous I was being that like, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere and I'm going to ignore him at this particular point. (laughs) (laughs) I, I love that because I have raced with my husband as well. And it's like, there's just certain kinds of communication that you can only have with a spouse. And especially when, <laughs> when you're both suffering out in the wilderness, <laughs> there's yeah, just yeah. certain, certain, you know, ways that you interact with each other that would probably never happen with another person, but it does happen with a spouse. And luckily they tend to understand, you know, when you're being ridiculous or you understand when they're being ridiculous and, and can kind of adjust. It's like, okay, she's having a rough moment. I'm going to chill for a minute or vice versa, you know? So I, I get that. I totally get that. Like I, like I, I, we just laugh about it now. Like, what were you like? Why did you walk by me and pretend you didn't see me? Obviously you saw me, but I don't, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking, except I was feeling blue at that particular moment. And it was good to have him call me on it. And it just made me realize the, um, how ridiculous I was being. Let's move on to the ITI. That's the race you just did in March. Tell me about what this race, what is this race? What is it about? Oh, yeah. So the Iditarod Trail, um, most people know that from outside of Alaska. It's well known as the, um, I think they may call it the last great race. I think maybe it's tagline. And it starts in just north of Anchorage and goes a thousand miles to Nome, Alaska and western Alaska on the coast. And sled dog racing, it, uh, 
if it's not familiar, there's a team of dogs and a sled and the person is in the sled. They have all their gear in their sled and then they're being pulled by the dogs. And, and it's not just that they're being pulled, pulled off and they're running beside their sled too, or they're using a ski pole to help propel them along. And because there is this race or this trail, it gives an opportunity for others to use it as well. So there's also a snowmobile, snow machine race on, on the um, trail that's called the Iron Dog. And there's the Iron Dog and then the human powered race and then the sled dog race. And I have to, I, I didn't say this, but it's a wilderness race. Once you start the race, you leave the road system and then there are no roads that are connected to other communities. So, but you're just, you're just off the road. There's no way to get out except by plane. Or I suppose if someone were willing to, to give you a ride on a snow machine, that sort of thing. The Iditarod Trail Invitational, it's either um, foot, bike, or ski. And foot are, are the runners. Um, they prefer to be called foot over runner. I'm not sure why, but I think they do a mix of hiking, running, and walking. And then the cyclist. Um, and when this first started, people were riding mountain bikes on the, on the snow. And then it, it uh, evolved to having fatter tires over time. And then the, there are skiers as well. There's a lot less skiers now than there have been in the past. And I'd say predominantly it's cyclists that are tackling this race. So, and I guess actually I realized I should say too, that the, the full Iditarod Trail is a thousand miles or a little over a thousand miles. So for the, the human powered race, you have the option of doing the full distance to Nome, or there's a 350 mile race, which goes to McGrath. And now there's also a 130-mile race, which is a shorter distance for people who want to get started. And the race that I've done thus far is this was my second year racing the ITI, and I've, I've gone to McGrath. So I've done a 350-mile race. It's my understanding that this race was particularly challenging in regards to the conditions. Can we talk about that? So this year, the snow conditions were pretty good. The, the trail was snow-covered throughout but there was a change in the sled dog race in that at the time when they were making the call for uh, race conditions, there wasn't a lot of snow going over the Alaska range. So the Alaska range is a range of mountains that is uh, east-west across the state of Alaska. Denali, the highest peak um, in North America, is in the Alaska range. And then there's Denali National Park as well. So as you're going north and west, you have to cross the Alaska Range. And there's an area on the north side of the range that's in a rain shadow, and there wasn't a lot of snow on that side, so it was deemed to be dangerous for the, the dog mushers. So they chose to change the start to Fairbanks this year, and it started in Fairbanks. This is the third time rather than um, just north of Anchorage. So once they made that change, it meant that we, weren't, we wouldn't have the groomers out on the trail for our race and they wouldn't be grooming the um, section over the pass. That's the typical route over Rainy Pass, and we'd have to take this alternate pass that's called Hell's Gate. That change in route added 35 miles, and it became more of an unknown. There was more snow than there had been in previous years, and in addition, it was colder than it had been in previous years. There were temperatures down to in, in the minus 30s that were recorded along the course at the checkpoints. And there were reports of up to minus 45 in traveling over the Alaska range. It's my understanding, like over half the field that attempted this race scratched. They did not complete it. They did. Yes, yes. And it was for various issues. I mean, a lot of it was related to cold temperatures. So there were people with, um, with frostbite 
for example, and I saw, I didn't see anyone. Actually, I, I was going to say I didn't see anyone personal, personally. There was one person I saw with frostbite. And it, it, it was scary to, to um, imagine what that would be like to be in that situation. So frostbite was a big reason um, that there were, were um, scratches. And then as well, there was a virus or flu that was going around. And there were quite a few people who got ill on the trail as well, which I, I can't imagine what that would have been like. My eyes got really big when you said that. It's just like, are you kidding that too? Yeah, yeah. So a couple girls, um, Jen and Melissa, who are twins, who were doing the race for the first time, it was their rookie year, were doing doing pretty well and moving along. And then one of them, um, Melissa, got hit hard by, by this flu. And thankfully, they were together. Um, so they had to what we call bivy on the trail. So there are checkpoints along the race course, places where... Um, you know, sometimes it's a cabin, sometimes it's someone's house, and other times it's just like a tent um, that are available to sleep in during during the course because it is a 350 mile race and it really isn't an option not to sleep at all. I think even the leaders will will sleep at least for a few hours during the race. Um, but we well, we carry all of our gear with us so we can just camp on the side of the trail if needed. And what we have is our our sleeping bag and a bivy sack typically, so we call it bivying. And Melissa and Jen had to bivy and Melissa was, I think it was predominantly, now I'm, I'm putting this out there, like just loss of fluids. So that's all you got to say. I'm, I'm realizing I'm outing her during this. And, 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 and there were several others in the same position where it just hit them and they were down and not having a toilet nearby. And, and one thing like we hadn't thought about, like you carry so much toilet paper with you when you're in that situation, we know, of course you can use snow that can be used as an alternative, but, um, yeah, it can get pretty bad, especially in conditions like, like we saw this year with the cold temperatures and, and wind as well. Ugh, I just couldn't even imagine <laughs> going through that out there. I I'm feeling for this poor woman, you only said her first name, yeah. so hopefully we didn't out, out her too much. So you did this race with your husband as you tend to do. And I, I found out about your story through an article that where that interviewed him, where he actually got into a bit of a pickle, you would say. Um, and he credited you for, with saving his life during this race. And the story that I read in this article is crazy. <laughs> and I want to know more about it. And I want to know about it through your perspective, because I read about it through his perspective. So could you walk me through your experience in that race? And just tell me what happened with him and how y'all got through it through your eyes. Yeah, we um, we actually did not intend to do the race together. We did it together last year on our rookie year, and he's faster than me at this point. We were more similar at one time, but he's um, quite fit and uh, is faster, so wanted to see what he could do, and I wanted us to each have our individual races. So we started out not together, but we ended up meeting up because he wasn't he wasn't feeling well. And we did, the whole race took me a little over five days. So two of those days, we, we ended up biking together. So my first day I was solo. And then we met up, we did one day together, approaching the Alaska range. And then we went over the Alaska range together. As we were coming out on the other side of, um, of Hell's Gate, and we're traveling down, the trails will follow uh, rivers. They're good, um, good conduits for travel along the rivers, which in, in a lot of ways is great, but if there is a river that has uh, 
if there are springs nearby or for some reason it's open, it can be um, it can be a bit scary. And we were following a river on the north side of the pass to um, to Rhone, which is a checkpoint for the sled dog race, a checkpoint for this race. So it had been a difficult day. We'd started in the morning. I think we left at about 4 a.m. And so we started at night. And uh, things had gone pretty well overall, given um, the cold and uh, the wind. I was actually biking in my down pants, which is unusual. I have down pants with me just in case and when I'm off the bike, but it was that cold. And we were fully covered, our faces, hands, everything. We're using hand warmers, toe warmers. So I'm, I'm kind of setting this up just so you know how the day had gone, because we were in the home stretch. We like I had thought the difficult part was behind us because we were approaching Rhone. We were on a river, which means that uh, it was fairly easy to follow in terms of navigation. And he was out ahead of me, and we got to a point where there was ice without snow on top, which usually is an indication that the the ice is warmer. And there's potential that there's what's called overflow, so water that's flowing over the ice or flowing underneath the ice. And that's um, ultimately what happened is that we, we saw we were on this ice and started to hear it crack. And at that moment, realized we needed to get off. And he was in front of me and he fell through in his bicycle. And, he, it, it, you know, it wasn't when I say fell through, it wasn't over his head, but it was up to mid thigh or so. So he and then he was standing on the bottom of the river. So he actually went through to to the river and it was about minus 20, I think, at that point, which it had been potentially this. If you want to believe the temperature on someone's thermometer that we met at the pass, potentially it was minus 40 at one point. So it had felt much warmer, but that's still cold um, and quite dangerous in those in, in those conditions. So he went through and I was able to get off the ice before him to the side of the river and was able to help him get his bike and get him so he was on land. And it's it's really interesting. We're, we're um, different people in some regards and how we tell a story. And I, I think in my mind, I just kind of went into this mode of like, okay, you know, we, we, we need to pay attention. We need to be careful here, but we're going to make it to the next checkpoint. And we just have to make some, make some decisions here and uh, move forward. And I think that I just had a very clear mind at that point. Um, and his mind, I think early on was clear as well. And then over time, his thinking started to deteriorate. So got him into dry pants, he changed his socks, so dry socks, but he put his feet back into boots, which had just been immersed. And it wasn't like 30 seconds, like he had to continue um, breaking through the ice to get to the side of the river. So his boots were thoroughly soaked. When he put his dry socks into his boots, they immediately got wet. But he was doing well. He was well-fueled and hydrated. So we just decided he's a faster cyclist. He's just going to boogie ahead and get to the checkpoint um, as quickly as he can. And that seemed like a good plan. But as soon as he got on his bike, his chain fell off. I can't catch a break. Yeah, yeah, we realized that, well, you know, the the bike had been in water, maybe halfway up the wheels, but it had fully covered his chain, his drivetrain, and we had to chip every section, every chain link had ice in it. And that had to be chipped out so that he could continue down the trail. And he left, and I thought I would see him up ahead at the checkpoint in a few hours because we had 
another 20 miles to go. And I thought that was the end of it, but it ended up not being the end. About an hour later, I saw somebody up ahead pushing their bike, and it was pretty good trail, so I wasn't sure why they were pushing. And I saw this person in the distance, and I knew there were other people ahead of us. So I was looking, and, and I know his gait, and I thought, oh, that's not him. I don't know who that is, but that's, that's not Cody. I'm sure he's fine. He's probably already at the checkpoint. And I got closer and realized it was him, and he was sort of had a drunken swagger. Um, and he'd had a flat tire and just decided to start pushing his bike and, and wasn't thinking that clearly. So his hypothermic gait isn't the same as his normal gait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I suppose it was it was like, you know, was it a hypothermia? Like potentially, yeah, like moving to that point um, where he just wasn't doing well. And his, you know, his face was white, his lips were blue. And he just said, you know, I'm really cold. And I was just it's like, why didn't you put air in your tire? How'd you get a flat tire? And he just said, you know, I, I, I don't know. And that's that's not like him. So I knew something was wrong. And yeah, I think in my in my head, I was just thinking, like, how are we going to get this done? And I wasn't thinking about dire consequences, because I just thought, like, you know, there's no option other than we're going to get to the warm checkpoint. <laughs> You were in business mode. You were like, we, this, there is no option here. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Business mode. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I think in his mind, he was starting to think maybe he wasn't going to make it. Um, and he, he would, he said that, you know, I just want to lay down. I'm thinking about bibbing. And I just said, no, you know, you're not going to do that. And if you do, you're, you know, you're not going to finish because I'm going to send someone back here to check up on you and to take you back to the checkpoint because yeah, it just wasn't an option. It was cold enough that it wasn't an option. We had people ask like, why didn't you build a fire and dry your stuff out? Cody didn't have any, um, his pants were wet and he had down pants and that's what he was biking in because that was the only other piece of clothing he had. So if we'd stopped and built a fire, um, he potentially could have just stayed in a sleeping bag and I could have done the work with the fire and drying things out. But he didn't really have an option even to just get up and and go to the bathroom, take a pee because he had no pants on. <laughs> we didn't want him to get colder. And it was minus 20 and it was settling in to be even colder. I think that night it was down near minus 35. So, And a bivy sack isn't the same as a tent. Um, all it really does is cover your sleeping bag. So it just didn't seem to be an option to build a fire at that point. So we just knew we had to keep moving forward. He just listened and it, um, he referred to me in that article that Craig Medred wrote as a uh, as a drill sergeant, which is like anyone who knows me would probably think that's that's humorous. But I was pretty much just like, that's not an option. We're going to keep going. And <laughs> it was business time. Yeah, absolutely. So he was willing to let me take his bike and he started pushing my bike so that I could get air in his tire. And a lot of us were having trouble. We run these tubeless tires now. And in those cold temperatures, the valves were pretty finicky. So it, it was hard to get air in to the tire. But I was able to get something in. And then I figured I would jump on his bike and I'd pedal and meet him while he was pushing my bike. Because I just, I just didn't want him to stand still because he just would have gotten colder at that point. So I wanted him to at least keep moving and walking. Uh, and so then I decided, OK, I'll, I'll hop on his bike and ride it. But I could not ride his bike. <laughs> the, the frame was too large and uh, we have a different setup. So I couldn't clip into his pedals even if I just wanted to, like, you know, not put my butt on the seat. So I had to just kind of run with his bike to catch up with him. And he I think he started to realize that I wasn't going to be able to catch up either. So he went a little bit slower and I met him and gave him his bike. And he uh, I said, OK, you know, let's let's have a snack. Let's drink some water and then we're going to pedal. And I pedaled behind him and he was swerving somewhat. He remembers that he was really slow. I don't think he was as as we got into the checkpoint. 
And I think it took us five hours, which if we'd been pedaling should have taken us two or three hours. I think the max I, I was seeing on our GPS was about seven miles per hour for myself. And we made it into the checkpoint and got in and were able to get him, get him warm and fed. And the checkpoint volunteers are amazing. Uh, we're able to check on his feet, which we were really concerned about frostbite. They were um, kind of white waxy when he took them out of his boots, so got him into some booties. And uh, Kevin Robbins, the checkpoint volunteer, was just amazing um, taking care of him and got some warm food into him and he essentially passed out until the next morning. <laughs> Understandable. Understandable, yes. So was he done with the race at that point? He, you know, he wasn't. He thought, I'm going to get some sleep and I'm going to rest and dry out my clothes and I'm going to keep going. That's what he thought. But he ended up not um, not finishing and flying out from that room checkpoint back back home to Anchorage. Well, good for him for wanting to do it. You're, you're both competitors. So I, I understand that mindset. That it's like, well, no, I'm going back in. And then life and reality might have other news for yeah, you. Yeah, I think he'd been able to dry his gear. There was a wood stove in that tent, but just with the cold temperatures, um, things weren't drying. Essentially, they were frozen. So that was like, he made a good call. Yeah, I would yeah say. we made it together because there were two other people, um, I think because of frostbite and uh, other reasons that were flying out. So there was already a flight arranged. So adding one more person made it easy to make that decision. So he he was done. You were not. Yeah, I was still feeling um, doing well. I had, didn't have any cold injuries and my stomach was still feeling okay. And uh, we talked that morning and he said, go ahead without me. And I was hesitant, but I uh, decided to and, and went ahead and uh, left that morning about 7 a.m. So after this crazy situation with your husband, through this brutal race, you actually ended up topping the women's field when you finished. I did, and that was a surprise, yes. Yeah, so what what got you through the rest of the race, and what was it like to, to find out that you came out on top? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. <laughs> I felt good and wanted to finish, and I, you know, you sign up for this race, like we already signed up next year. You signed up in April, so you have a lot of time to think about this. Um, I'd been putting a lot of time and effort into this and wanted to finish if at all possible. And knowing that he was in good hands at the Roan checkpoint, that Cody was, and that he had a flight out, I was able to continue on my own. And I, at that point, thought there was another woman right behind me. So I kind of had that propelling me forward. I didn't know until I got into the next checkpoint about... Uh, 70 miles from from Roan and Nikolai that the woman who I thought be was behind me ha actually hadn't gone over to the over the pass. So she had not been behind me um, for two days. And I just I kept expecting someone to like to come up behind me, which is just interesting how, how you can be propelled forward and think that I imagine there's just a lot of psychology to this, like everything you've been telling me, there's a lot of psychology to propelling yourself forward and pushing yourself to the end of a race like this. And so I want to I tip my hat to you for pushing yourself through a race like this, through the situation with Cody and everything he went through and getting into that business mode to get him safe um, and then pushing yourself forward using whatever means you need to, psychological or fuel or rest or whatever you needed to do to get yourself to the end of that race and end up topping the women's field in that race. So I just want to congratulate you for that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that last 50 miles um, went pretty well, except near the end there, uh, 
it's really from point A to point B. So there's the Iditarod Trail, and then there are some trails that are um, earned knowledge, I think is what they call it, that you learn through experience. And there was a point where I could have gotten off the the river on my way into McGrath and uh, had a much better time of it with a, a snow machine track that went to a road and about 10 miles into town. And it would have been packed down on that road. Uh, but I stayed on the Diderot trail, which is what I knew. And it was, there was not a good trail. So I ended up having to push like the last 15 miles into the finish. And that's where I did most of the pushing of the entire race. Um, and that was uh, a very low point for me, (laughs) um, being out there and, and you, you know, you could see where you were going, but you just had, you know, moving along at like one, one and a half miles per hour, so close to the end. And I was not going to give up at that point, but that was probably my, my lowest time of the entire race. Yeah, I imagine. And just, I mean, at least knowing the ends in sight, but at the same time, it's like, oh, can this take any longer? Yeah, yeah. I imagine that was, that was part of your thought process at that time. Yeah. And I, I just want to say, as you're, I'm talking about this, there is a documentary, um, RJ Sawyer, who biked to know him this year, put out, I think maybe 15 years ago, um, about the, the, I did Rod Trail Invitational. It's called uh, the Thin White Line, and it's available on Vimeo um, just for download to watch the documentary. And and times have changed quite a bit. If you if you watch that, you would see not fat, fat tire bikes. People have skinnier tire bikes, and the technology has changed a lot. Um, but just I, I think it's a, a great introduction to the event. So let's talk about some more general things that you have learned in your career racing so far. You talked about some of the dark moments. We've, we've touched on some of those. What would you say would be the worst, hardest, or most difficult moment in your competitive journey as an ultra endurance athlete so far? Honestly, this year, I didn't, I didn't say this because we didn't talk about the very beginning of the race. I thought about quitting on the first day of this race this year. <laughs> so to go on and be the first woman is, is surprising to me because I wasn't expecting that. On the first day, I was having some mechanical issues with my bike and having typically in longer races been paired with my husband who has the skills, um, more bike mechanic uh, skills, I was concerned that I would not be able to do this by myself if something happened mechanically with my bike. And I had two different incidents where I was concerned and another race participant who is a bike mechanic himself, Troy, helped me. And if he hadn't helped me, I think I I potentially would have, when I was closer to the road, scratched in the first 50 miles. And that that had crossed my mind. And it was mostly it it was this having a mechanical issue, not knowing how to solve it. So what do you think is the most important thing you learned from that moment where you almost quit in the first 50 miles of the race? What would you think going into future races is the most important thing that you learned from that? I learned that, uh, you know, I have my own knowledge and I learned a lot by going through this by myself as compared to having Cody and saying, hey, you know, my my gears are skipping. What's going on back there? And, you know, he would tell me what he was doing and like, oh, this, this and this. And, and, and he'd fix it for me. But actually doing it myself and being in that position where I didn't have him to rely on, it helped to boost my confidence. And also knowing that other race participants were there 
and they were willing to help talking with others and can kind of give you that support that you need when you're having a low moment. So to admit that you're not doing well and ask, ask for help from other people, I think was a big lesson for me. And on the other side, uh, what would you consider to be your high point, your best moment in your competitive journey? Uh, definitely this year, those, those last couple of days saying goodbye to Cody. And, and I don't, I wouldn't say that that was a high moment, but setting off on my own like that felt really big for me and, and finishing by myself was a big accomplishment. I I don't want to say that necessarily. Like I do other events by myself. We've done other bike races by ourselves, but there was something about doing it solo and finishing solo. That was really big for me and, and gave me that boost of confidence. So when you train for these races as an athlete in your forties and competing at a really high level, doing Races, I mean, this was a 350-mile winter race in brutal terrain. Uh, what issues do you find you encounter, or do you find that you encounter issues training as an older athlete? Well, that is a good question. I almost want to say being older is an asset because, uh, especially in a wilderness race of this sort, having the experience and knowledge is really quite important. So if I had done something like this in my 20s, for example, I don't know that I, I would have had that knowledge base that I have now after many years of being active in the outdoors in the winter. So would you say the knowledge and possibly just the maturity of being a little bit older and facing the conditions that you face helps you out? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that knowledge and the maturity for sure. And I didn't really push myself when I was younger in the same way. So I don't really have that for comparison as well. Um, because I trying to think of how old I was, I was um, just over 40 when I did my first 100 mile race. So I, I didn't do this sort of thing when I was younger, the endurance racing. And I, I can relate to that. I didn't play I didn't play sports growing up at all. I didn't do anything competitive until I was 28 years old. And I'm in my 40s now as well. And I'm finding that I have a, a drive that I think I didn't have when I was younger. And so there's there's something to what you're saying. Yeah. And I like physically, I have found it just seems to get better. Maybe recovery time is it takes longer. So at this point, I did some riding right after my race um, because I was planning to do a hundred mile race at the end of end of March and I ended up having to drop from that race. So I didn't even, I didn't even start. So there, there were a few other um, circumstances as well. I just did a trip to, um, to the Czech Republic, to Prague for work. And I had a flight at 6 a.m. the morning after that race. So the race would have started 8 a.m. on a Sunday. And then Monday morning, I had to be on a plane at 6 a.m. I was feeling fatigued. And that in combination with I know I'm going to have to get on a plane the next morning. And um, what if this fatigue leads to a knee injury or leads to some kind of injury that I need to be taken off the course by a snow machine? I decided not to do that race. So I, I was calling it the adult decision. Would I have made that decision if I hadn't had to get a plane? I probably would have been out there racing and maybe I wasn't ready for that. Maybe I needed to take a longer break. And I suppose I won't know, but I know next year I plan to sign up or I actually already did sign up for the ITI to do the full distance to Nome. And I don't plan to do another race after that. And the full distance, in case we have forgotten, is a thousand miles. Yeah. So to do the full thousand mile um, next year. Yes. Yeah. So maybe allow yourself a little bit of recovery time after that. Yeah. And it's different for different individuals, but it sounds like if there's any issue that you do encounter as an older athlete, and especially just for you in particular, it's managing your ambition and your drive versus your need for recovery. I've learned 
it's not worth it to be injured. It's better to, to step back and take it easy as compared to having an injury and having to recover because it can take months. It'll keep you competing longer and it'll keep you competing more frequently. Exactly. Okay. So what advice would you give to someone who may be around your age? Because you said you were in your 40s when you started. Consider dipping their toes into this ultra world or the winter ultra world that you live in. But they may hear about it, and especially the stories we've been telling today, they may find it intimidating or out of their league. What advice would you give to that person? I would say to start start small, like a, a 50K, for example, and see how see how that goes and work your way up from there. And so I, that's my recommendation is to start small and then you have to choose your mode. I, I think it's easier biking than running, for example. It's going to take you less time, but it really depends on your preference and what your sport is. So just with with any type of race that someone might do, you start with the smallest version of it. So if someone who has never run before wanted to run races, they would start with a 5K. If somebody has never done an ultra before, they may start with a 50K. So it's about starting starting at that kind of entry level. And then if you like it and if you get a rush from it, like it sounds like you do, you keep working your way up. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and talk with people who are more experienced and potentially hire a trainer because you'll want to put together a training plan so that you're prepared and it's both mentally and physically to know that you can tackle the distance that you're aiming for. Yeah. Because it's not just being physically trained. That's, I think a lot of people think it's like, I just need to to work out. I just need to train, but it's such a mental thing. And especially at these distance races and in the conditions that you're in, like the mental game is just as important or maybe more important than the physical game. Yeah. Yeah. There are times I definitely think the mental game is more important. So before we go, do you have one parting piece of wisdom that you've learned in your competitive journey that you'd like to share with our listeners today? To be kind to yourself and to be forgiven because there will be high and low points in, in any ultra race or in my experience, any long distance, whether it's a race or not throughout your day and throughout your journey, the, the distance that you've chosen to, um, to try to accomplish and just to take the highs and the lows as they come and to realize that it, it, it is cyclical and that you won't always be in that, that dark or low place that you'll come out of it and, and keep that in mind when you're, when you're feeling low. And this actually, I mean, this is great advice for, competition for doing long races for doing tough races for doing difficult challenging athletic feats but this is also really good life advice yeah yeah it is absolutely and and as you introduced me i i am i'm a scientist and in the academic field i have a phd and part of what we do is we we write papers we write proposals and we get you know some papers are accepted and sometimes they're rejected and you have to go back and and make changes and uh, rewrite and resubmit. And it's it's part of my career track as well, um, for sure. The rejection is a big part of it. And just putting that out there, that it's something that you just need to need to like gather your pride. It's not personal and you keep going. And it's the same in um, uh, in racing as well for me. So I think that I, I definitely have learned lessons uh, in my career track that I can apply as, as well to racing. So always remember, don't be hard on yourself, forgive yourself and move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And it won't always be, you won't always be in that darker place that that you'll come out on the other side. Fantastic advice, Amy. So thank you so much for taking the time today to be on the season athlete podcast. Yeah. Thank you. It was great talking with you. And I'm, um, I'm glad to, uh, to learn about your podcast and I'll be um, a listener as well. I love it. Thank you. And it, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you today and hear your extraordinary story and just to hear about this sport and this, the racing that you do. 
just blows my mind, but it's so incredibly cool. So thank you for taking the time and I cannot wait to follow what you do next. Oh, thank you, Robin. Thank you for listening to the Seasoned Athlete Podcast. The music you heard on this episode is from bensound.com. All right, friends, I have a really big favor to ask. I need your help to get the word out about Seasoned Athlete. How can you do that? It's really easy. Just share. Share it with your friends, your family, your network, or anyone you think might benefit from the stories told by the incredible athletes featured on this show. Send out an email, share on social media, or sing our praises from the mountaintops. The more you talk about Seasoned Athlete, the more people we can reach, inspire, and motivate through this show. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much for your help. And while you're at it, follow us on social, Seasoned Athlete Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And hey, do you know someone who would make a great guest on this show? Shoot us an email, seasonedathlete at gmail.com and tell us all about them. Or if it's you, tell us all about yourself. Now go out there and embrace your extraordinary, my fellow seasoned athletes, because you know what? You so can.